This evening, we're continuing our overview of the New Testament book titled Colossians. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Colossians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul actually wrote this little epistle in order to encourage the Christians who were gathering together there at the church in in the city of Colossae. And it was in the first half of this book when we considered how Paul uh, took the time to set the record straight regarding several harmful heresies which were beginning to be embraced by some people there in that church. There were obviously false teachers coming in and presenting false doctrines. And so Paul uh, spent the first two chapters addressing that. But now, Here in the second half of this little epistle, you know, we find Paul shifting gears now from the foundations of sound Christian theology to the practical praxology of Christian living. And as we continue to make our way through this little epistle, you know, that we're going to begin to see that the Christian faith is not just about what we believe, uh, but the Christian faith should also change the way that we live. Most certainly, Christianity is about what we believe. But what we believe by way of theology should impact our praxology in the way we live our lives. So with all that as our focus, let's consider the challenge that Paul presents to the Christians there in Colossae regarding the way that they ought to live. If you would look with me here at Colossians chapter 3, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Colossae to make sure that they were fixing their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this as our goal, we must not fail to grasp the logical proposition that Paul here is presenting. If you would, let's look again there at verse 1. Here again, Paul declares, If you were raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And listen, Christ isn't literally sitting at the right hand of God. This speaks of God's power and the power of his grace. So, so Christ is there seated at the throne of God's power. And, and, and that's where we need to be focusing. And when we find Paul here presenting this logical proper, proposition by saying, if this is true of you, then this should also be true of you. If you were raised with Christ, if that's really true of you, then you ought to be seeking those things which are above where Christ is. If it's true that you're a born-again believer, then you ought to be spending every day prayerfully seeking the leading of the Lord so that we can make every decision with the divine guidance that comes from God's heavenly perspective. As we continue to consider these instructions, I should take a moment to address the nominal Christians who are quick to insist that, well, we don't want to become so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. You ever hear anybody say that? You know, you don't want to become such a Jesus freak that you really can't, you know, abide in this world. Listen, the problem with these people is that they're typically so earthly-minded that they've become no heavenly good. And then they want to make you feel bad if you get super excited about the Lord. That being the case, you know, we should take a moment to consider 
well, in what way then should we be setting our minds on things above and not on the things of the earth? I mean, we have to focus to some degree on the things here on earth, right? You know, we've got jobs to go to, we've got families to take care of, we've got things that need to happen here on the earth. So how is it that we can just set our minds on, on, on Christ and not on things on the earth and, and then just, you know, let everything spiral out of control here on earth? What does that even mean? Well, it might help us to remember, first of all, that our God has an infinite perspective, And this infinite perspective enables him to see everything on the entire planet. Like, like we we can see what's happening here in this room right now. But we can't see beyond these, these four walls, so to speak. You know, we can't see what's going on outside of our building right now, unless you have access to our security cameras. You know, we, we, we don't know what's going on at uh, the restaurant across the street right now. I mean, we, we've got a very finite perspective on things. God has an infinite perspective. He can actually see everything happening on the entire planet, even right now. And, and not only that, but I'll remind you that he's able to see the end of time from the beginning of creation. Think about that for a moment. Our God was able to see the end of time from the beginning of the creation and, and is able to process everything that would happen on the entire planet for all of that time. That's quite the perspective. With that being the case, you know, he's the one who's able to provide us with the divine directions that we need from his infinite perspective. And, and if you're trying to make sense of the world around you and you're trying to, to make the next decision that, that might impact your tomorrow, well, you can't even see past this room. You, can't, you don't even know what I'm about to chicken. See, you didn't, you didn't know I was going to say that. You had no clue. And yet God already knew that I was going to say something silly like that. So who's calling the shots in your life? You? In all of your wisdom? Or are you looking to the divine directions as you seek the, the instructions from Christ? You know, it's sort of like, you know, we're NASCAR drivers receiving constant guidance from the team manager and the crew chief and the spotter who's able to see the entire track from the spotter's stand. You might not know that, but every NASCAR driver has a radio which enables them to receive these instructions from their team manager as well as their crew chief and their spotter. And the spotter is up in the stands, you know, telling them what's, what's happening a half a mile up the track. NASCAR drivers are able to make the best decisions while driving, though, though they're having a hard time seeing past the, the, the rear bumper of the car that's right in front of them. And, and their team manager, their crew chief, and their spotter is helping them uh, to weave their way through the chaos of this race by giving them intel every moment. Now, we must agree that it would be extremely foolish for a NASCAR driver to turn off their radio. And the reason why is because it would be difficult to just, you know, see past the car in front of them. Uh, So, you know, how are you going to know whether to pass the car on the right or to pass the car on the left or don't pass at all? Let alone see, you know, half mile up the track where a collision may have just occurred. In order to safely navigate the race, the NASCAR driver needs to receive constant communication from the team manager, the crew chief, and the spotter up in the stands. 
It's in a similar yet spiritual way that the Christian needs to, needs to keep the radio on, so to speak. That we need to spend time prayerfully seeking the divine directions that come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, our triune God is the one who's able to provide us with the infinite instructions that we need so that we can make decisions that are in line with his perfect will. And you can focus on the things here on earth and try to make sense of everything and make good decisions that you think are going to benefit you the most, and and yet you still don't know how it's going to impact your tomorrow. Whereas if you're receiving divine guidance from on high, if you're looking to Christ to guide you, then he'll provide you with the instructions that you need so that you can make decisions here on earth. That makes sense. With all this as the goal, then, let's continue to consider the divine directions that the Lord has provided for us right here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up and back up a little bit to verse 2. Here again, Paul declares, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to, to remember here that the born-again believer has also died to sins, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Think about that for a moment. The born-again believer has died to sins, and now our life is hidden in Christ. I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 2. It's there where he declares, for I through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What an incredible verse this is, you know, and, 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 and as we grasp this concept that it's no longer I who live, I died on the cross with Christ. And now Christ is living through me. In a spiritual sense, our fallen flesh has been crucified. Uh, it was crucified on the cross with Christ. And what this means then is that our fallen flesh is positionally dead in Christ. With that being the case, Paul is now calling us to practically live our lives in such a way that properly reflects this new position that we have in Christ. With this as the goal, I want to take some some time here to consider the challenge that Paul is presenting. Uh, If you would, let's back up and look again at verse 5. There again, he declares, therefore, put to death. You died, now put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, for the sake of clarity, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that Paul, he's not encouraging anyone to commit suicide here. No, instead, the the phrase put to death in this context, it means to subdue through self-denial. It speaks of depriving the power of something or destroying the strength of our sinful desires. 
I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 13. There he declares, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. In other words, we are, we are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and at the same time, we are to restrict our minds from thinking about all of the different ways that we might gratify the depraved desires of our fallen flesh. That's why he says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't, don't set aside any provisions so that you can do what your flesh wants to do. In order to further grasp this goal, let's consider the list of sins that Paul here is calling us to crucify. Uh, we begin here with fornication. And just to be clear, that word fornication found in the middle of verse 5 was translated from the Greek word pornea, which not only speaks of pornography, but it also speaks of every sort of sexual immorality, which includes and yet not limited to premarital sex and extramarital affairs. To sum it up with simplicity, you know, Paul here is calling every Christian to crucify every evil desire which would lead us into a life of sexual immorality. We should also notice the second word on this list, which is found there in verse 5, it's translated uncleanness. The original Greek word, well, it speaks of any impure thought that leads to lustful and licentious living. Therefore, Paul here is encouraging every Christian to crucify every impure thought before it turns into a sinful action. The third word that Paul presents on this list, it's found there in verse 5, it's passion. And the original Greek word translated passion, it refers to the depraved and vile emotions that arouse our minds. The, the same word also speaks of the strong sexual desires and emotional excitement that, if left unchecked, would lead us into a life of lustful and licentious living. This brings us to the fourth word that Paul presents on the list that we find there in verse 5. It's there where he, uh, uh, he tells us to uh, crucify or, or to put to death every evil desire. Just to be clear, evil desires are the cravings that we have for what is forbidden. Evil desires, they, they, they're the lusts of the flesh that lead us to pursue those things that the word of God has identified as being wicked and worthless. This brings us to the fifth and final word on the list, which is covetousness. That Greek word, which was rendered covetousness, was used in reference to the greedy desire for more. And in the context of verse 5, you know, Paul seems to be talking about any covetous desire that leads us into a life of idolatry, by which you know, the object of our desire ends up becoming more important than the true and living God. When we have covetousness for something so much that it becomes an idol in our life, we become guilty of idolatry. And Paul says we need to put those covetous desires to death. Paul is encouraging the Christians there in Colossae to crucify the carnal cravings of their fallen flesh. And the reason why is found there in verses 6 and 7. Notice again in verse 6 where Paul goes on to declare, because of these things, this, because of, the, of these things that he just listed, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. 
In other words, those who continue to live for the lust of their flesh will eventually receive the righteous punishment that they deserve for all of their evil deeds. That being the case, those of us who have truly received a brand new life in Jesus Christ, well, we should make sure that we're also crucifying the depraved desires that we still have in our hearts, which will always lead us back into a life of lustful living. We have to crucify those things. We have to deprive them of power, not make provision for them. Not only that, but Paul also encouraged every Christian to walk in the newness of life by faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here Paul declares, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's challenging the Christians there in Colossae by encouraging them to realize that those who truly want to live for the Lord We must put off the old man so that we can walk in the newness of life. With this as the goal, we should first notice that the deeds of the old man, these include anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying. That word anger found there in verse 8 was translated from a Greek word which was used of the violent emotion that causes many people to develop what we call a bad temper. And while anger isn't always sin, there is such a thing as righteous indignation. It's rarely what's causing us to be angry. And we must not forget what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, where he declares, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. You know, those who uh, allow the sun to go down on unrighteous indignation are giving the devil opportunity to just further control them. And and while not all anger is wrong, you know, like, like God is angry with, with, you know, the devil, God is angry with the demons. God is angry with those who will not repent. You know, there is a righteous indignation And yet we must not allow our anger to control us so that we end up doing something sinful. And so Paul instructs us to put off anger. And not only that, you know, but he also uh, tells us that we need to put off unrighteous forms of wrath. That that word wrath, which is found there in the middle of verse 8, was translated from a Greek word which was used to describe the type of anger that quickly boils over and then subsides. We typically describe these people as having a very short fuse. You know, they just get mad real easy and they blow up and then everything's fine. And and if this sounds like you, then it's time to put off wrath. This is not the way Christians ought to behave. Paul also challenged us to put off malice. And just to be clear, that word malice found there in verse 8 was translated from a Greek word which was used of those who have an unrighteous desire to injure someone else, especially you know, in a, in a revengeful sort of way. Malice refers to the, those vengeful desires of those who have an ill will towards those that they perceive has, have stepped on their toes. And according to Paul, you know, the Christian has been called to put off every malicious thought. If you find yourself, you know, trying to work through a scenario where you get your 
you know, revenge on somebody, Paul says, no, crucify that. Furthermore, Paul instructs every Christian to put off blasphemy. And the word blasphemy uh, here in the middle of verse 8 was translated from a Greek word, which in this context is used of those who speak about others in a derogatory way, all in an attempt to injure their good name. And not only have we been called to avoid this sort of blasphemous speech by which we run someone's you know, name through the mud, you know, Paul also then challenges the church to put filthy language out of their mouths. Filthy language refers to the use of curse words, and not only that, but filthy language also refers to any communication that defiles those who hear you speak. Finally, we should consider the point that Paul was making there in verse 9 where he declares this. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. In other words, we should not only avoid blasphemous speech and filthy language, but we must also avoid the speech by which you know, we would be guilty then of spreading lies if we were to say those things. I like the way that Paul sums all of this up in Ephesians chapter 4. It's there you know, in verse 25 where he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We need to put away lying and speak the truth with one another. And, and earlier on in the context of the same chapter, he tells us to speak the truth in love. We need to make sure that as we speak the truth, that we're speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we can speak the truth in a very unloving way. And, and sometimes, you know, we can be very loving as we're lying to people. But we're just trying to spare their feelings with a lie. We need both. We need truth and love. And the combination of those two things is how the Christian ought to live. We need to put off the old man with all of his despicable deeds. And then we also need to put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created the new man that that we've received. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider the list that Paul goes on to present beginning here at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Here Paul goes on to declare this. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's presenting the Christians in Colossae with this list of qualities or, or these, this list of characteristics uh, that every believer you know, uh, ought to be known for. We, we ought to be putting these things on. And at the top of the list, Paul mentions their tender mercies. Tender mercies. Just to be clear, you know, tender mercies are the compassionate ways that we uh, care for those who are suffering. You know, if you can hear about, about the suffering of another person and just not really feel anything about it, well, that's, that's not Christ-like. You know, Christ was, you know, very compassionate as he engaged in his earthly ministry. He had compassion on the people that he was ministering to and even wept with those who, who, who were weeping. And much like our compassionate Christ, you know, those who have put on Christ, well, we should also have a heart that's filled with compassionate mercy for others, or tender mercies, as Paul puts it here. 
Paul also encouraged every Christian to put on kindness. And in other words, you know, believers are supposed to treat others with a, a benevolent tolerance as we learn how to serve those that might be you know, difficult to deal with. I'm sure we all know someone who's difficult to deal with. And it can be real easy to just start being unkind to them, to try to push them away because we don't want to deal with them. And Paul says, no, you need, as Christians, we need to put on kindness. And yeah, even with those who are difficult to deal with. Paul instructs us to be clothed with humility as well, which is to say that believers should be modest as we maintain self-awareness, the, you know, the sort of self-awareness that helps us to remember our own imperfections. You know how uh, easy it is to be critical about the imperfections of all the other people around us? And, and, and a lot of times, what is this based on except you know, a, a prideful uh, uh, lack of self-awareness about our own imperfections? You know, if we really just took some time to consider our own imperfections, then it, you know, we might not be so quick uh, to look down our nose at others. We need to be humble. We need to be clothed with humility. And just to be clear about this, you know, the, the humble person isn't uh, the person who thinks less of themselves. You know, the, the person who, you know, w- with all, you know, phony humility, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not good, I'm not a good Christian, you know, I'm the worst. When they don't really think that, that's not humility. That's, that's false humility, which is based in pride. The humble person doesn't think less of themselves. The humble person just thinks less about themselves. Meaning they spend time, less time thinking about themselves and more time thinking about others. This brings us to the next word on Paul's list, which is meekness. And just to be clear, meekness is not synonymous with weakness. No, instead, meekness, has, it's been described as power under control. So rather than using what power we, we have, you know, for our own selfish purposes to, to force our way into other people's lives and whatnot, you know, the Christian has been called to put on meekness so that we can use what power we do have to serve others not to bully our way in the lives of others. With this as the goal, it's no wonder that Paul encouraged us to be clothed with long-suffering. You know, in order to be meek and in order to be kind and in order to be humble, you know, we have to be ready to suffer long when it comes to dealing with others. And it's there in verse 13 where he goes on to describe long-suffering by instructing his audience to bear with one another and forgive one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If I were to have a list of the verses that I hate the most in the Bible, this would probably be one of them. Oh, I gotta forgive again? Come on. And yet, that's what we're called to. Long-suffering love. And listen, long-suffering love is demonstrated by the disciples who patiently forbear and promptly forgive those who have sinned against us. This brings us to the next challenge that Paul presents, which is found there in verse 14. There, Paul, Again, you know, Paul declares, but above all these things. So, so this whole list that we just went through, Above all those things, put on love, he says. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above everything else that we find on this list, it's the agape love of the Lord, which creates a perfect bond between each one of us here at our church. 
if we walk in the agape love of the Lord, then, then regardless of whether we're easy to get along with or hard to get along with or whatever the case is, it's the agape love of the Lord that keeps us bound together in Christian unity. Christians are united in Christ by the bond of our Savior's perfect love. And with that being the case, we must make sure that we are clothed with the love of the Lord so that we can be bonded together by his love. And as we enjoy the unity, you know, that's so important to, to remember that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, back, uh, back uh, a, a few verses ago, you know, he's talking about, you know, those who are, you know, uh, Gentiles and Jews and barbarians and Scythians. And, and you know, there, there's all these, you know, reasons to divide with one another, with one another, right? There, there's, there's all these things that would separate us. There's, there's all these things that would break the bond of our fellowship. And as we enter into our church, uh, you know, we can easily look across the, the room and think, well, I could never connect with that person because of this reason, or I could never really hang out with that person because of some other reason. And there's all these things that would divide us. And, and the secular world loves to highlight these things. And yet, listen, the Lord is calling us to walk in the unity of his love. We are to put on love, which is the bond of our perfection, regardless of all of our differences. And as we enjoy the unity that comes from the spiritual bond of God's agape love, you know, Paul encourages us to become these believers who are now peaceful and thankful. Notice again there in verse 15, here again Paul declares, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. In other words, you know, the Lord wants us to maintain the unity of our church by becoming believers who are peaceful and thankful. Rather than focusing on those things that would rob us of peace, we are to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. We aren't to be led astray by our anxieties. We aren't to be led astray by our fears or by our anger or or by our jealousies or by our covetousness. We are to let the peace of God rule in our hearts so that we can maintain the unity of our fellowship. And in this, be thankful. We need to have that attitude of gratitude for one another. Now, with all of this as the goal, I want to consider the plan that Paul presents, which helps us to then become these believers who are putting on the new man, which is peaceful and thankful. Let's pick up our study then of Colossians 3, beginning at verse 16. Here Paul declares, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here in these verses, we find Paul elaborating on the encouragement that he presented all the way back in verse 10. Remember, it's back in verse 10 where he instructs us to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, just think about that for a moment. If it's true that our new man is further renewed in knowledge... 
Well, then we should ask, what's the source of the knowledge by which our new man continues to be renewed? Well, the answer is found in verse 16. Paul declares, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. The source of knowledge by which we are renewed every day is the word of Christ. The believer who wants their new man to be renewed each and every day ought to spend time each and every day studying the word of God. And as we study the word of God, you know, we we acquire the divine knowledge which provides us with the wisdom and the teaching and even the admonition that we need so that we can become true worshipers who gather together to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs according to the grace of God that fills our hearts. Simply put, the Christian who wants to experience the transformed life, well, we have to spend time studying the word of God. And while it's true that the word of Christ Jesus helps us to walk in the newness of life while we're here at church as we gather together to sing praises to our Savior, listen, it's also true that the word of Christ will also transform our lives by helping us to become more and more like Jesus in every other sphere and sector of life. In order to prove my point, let's continue to consider the encouragement that Paul is presenting here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 17. Here Paul declares, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's challenging the Christians there in Colossae to realize that everything we say and everything we do ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is just another way of saying that, that we ought to be accomplishing our calling according to the character of Christ Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about the name of, of Christ Jesus. We're, we're talking about his character. Everything we, we say, everything we do, wherever we go, Our life should be a reflection of Christ's character. If you're a husband, well, you should love your wife according to the character of Christ Jesus. Are you a wife? Well, you ought to love your husband according to the character of Christ Jesus. Are you a parent? Are you a child? You should fulfill your familial role according to the character of Christ Jesus. Are you an employee or an employer? Well, then you should accomplish your position at work according to the character of Christ Jesus. Whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we ought to do it according to the character of Christ Jesus. As we give thanks to God the Father through this privileged position that we've received by faith in our Redeemer. And not only should we accomplish our calling according to the character of Christ Jesus, but we should also set out to serve our Savior with the vital force of our very soul. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 23, here Paul declares, and whatever you do, do it heartily 
as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the righteous rewards and the righteous repercussions that every person will eventually receive. Those who reject the Lord Jesus and instead continue living for the lusts of their flesh, well, they will eventually receive the righteous repercussion of everlasting punishment as all of their works are judged at the great white throne of Jesus Christ. John even tells us that books will be opened. And those who are standing at the great white throne of Jesus Christ will be judged for every single thing they ever did and every single thing they ever said. And every single thing will be judged according to the law. And it will not work out well for them. Conversely, those who trust in Christ Jesus will also receive a righteous reward for all the ways that we spent our life serving our Savior. Thankfully for the believer, all of our sins, well, those sins were punished on the cross. All of our unrighteousness was already punished on the cross. Our sin account was settled. So when we stand at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ, it's to determine what sort of rewards we receive for the ways that we served our Savior. With that being the case, you know, Paul encouraged the Christians there in Colossae by declaring this in, in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever we do, we should do it heartily, or or you might say wholeheartedly, unto the Lord. And, And the reason why is because everything we say or do, it should be done for the glory of God, knowing that we're gonna receive rewards for the way we serve him. Now, I realize it's easy to grow weary of serving those who oftentimes fail to show appreciation. If you're serving for the attaboys, if you're serving to be recognized, if you're serving, you know, in order to impress somebody else, you know, I mean, that might, that might help you to serve for a season or two, but it won't be long before you're burnt out because you don't always get the attaboys. You don't always get the recognition. You don't always make the impression. And so if that's the motivation, well, don't be surprised when you burn out. We don't need to be serving as unto men. Again, in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Don't, Don't come to this church and serve me. You're not serving me. I'm not here to serve you. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. And as I serve Jesus Christ, he says, okay, serve these people. Okay, I'll serve these people. Because I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And he calls me to come and serve you as I serve him. So if I get the 
Great sermon, pastor. Thank you. Well, praise the Lord. And if I go, if I get the, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. Everything you said was wrong. Okay, well, take it up with the Lord. I'm here to serve the Lord, and so should you be. And if we're here to serve the Lord, then we're not going to burn out if we don't get the attaboys. We're not going to burn out if we don't get the appreciation from people. We're not going to burn out if we don't get the recognition for everything that we've done. I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yeah, we ought to be serving one another. Why? Well, because we're here to serve our Savior. And as we set out to serve our Savior, we won't grow weary in well-doing because we recognize that our reward doesn't come from one another. As a matter of fact, I'd rather you not reward me. I'd rather receive the eternal reward. Don't rip me off here, people. I want my reward from Jesus Christ because that's an everlasting reward. And there's coming a day when we are going to stand before our Savior. And I don't know about you, but I am hoping to hear those words, well done, good and faithful leader. No. Well done, good and faithful pastor. Mm -mm. It's not what he's going to say. Well done, good and faithful servant is what he will say. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what, what, that's what he's going to say to his servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In the hopes that we would all hear those words from the Lord Jesus Christ, let's make sure that today we're putting off the old man and his deeds, which will continue to grow more and more corrupt. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who has made every born-again believer a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. And as new creations in Christ Jesus, let's continue to serve our Savior until we hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray.